Today on Categorical Imperatives, we are going to be talking about the history of sovereignty in England, and I assure you it's a much more interesting topic than it probably sounds like. Hey, greetings and welcome back once again to Categorical Imperatives. As always, I am your host, Lockean Liberal, and I do want to thank you for joining me here today. Now, if you are new to the show, I especially want to welcome you. This is a podcast where we are going to be using legal theory and moral philosophy to discuss current events in law, politics, and culture. And just real quick, if you dig what I do here and you want to play an active role in helping me to develop the channel to reach more people and to have an even richer discussion about law and philosophy, I would greatly appreciate your help, especially maybe considering going to be a patron over on my new Patreon page, where for just as little as $2 a month, you will get all kinds of extra goodies from a show notes page to a guaranteed topic request and more. Now, if you are able and willing to help, I would be very grateful for your support. If you aren't in a place to do that right now, I still appreciate you coming by and spending some of your time with me here today all the same. And that goes for brand new viewers and longtime subscribers alike. All right, now that I'm done whoring myself out, let's get to the topic for today. So today I have uh, another request from a regular viewer who always seems to have really good ideas for topics. Uh, I recently did a video on popular sovereignty, uh, and as a follow-up to that video, he asked me a question, and he uh, said, I heard sovereignty lies with the queen. Speaking of Britain, I heard sovereignty lies with the queen there, and that it is the same for Canada. And he asked me if I knew anything about that which indeed I do. And this is actually going to uh, give me a chance to discuss three of my favorite uh, topics, and that is English common law, American constitutional law, and comparative law. And especially considered common law and comparative law are usually topics I don't get a chance to discuss very often. Uh, that They don't really fit into the video topics I generally talk about. I always relish any chance to discuss these. I also think that this question is one of the most interesting aspects in the whole of common law, personally. And because I plan to also discuss this as a matter of comparative law between the British common law system and the American constitutional law system, uh, a little later in this video, I would suggest maybe going and watching my video on popular sovereignty that I recently did. Uh, I will be putting a link to that. Uh, up in the corner uh, if you want to go check it out right about now. So, let's get down to brass tacks. Is the Queen the Sovereign of Great Britain? Ooh, short answer yes with an if, long answer no with a but. You will be surprised how accurate that little clip is. That's not just a random funny clip. That actually is a really fitting answer uh, to the question. Uh, 
So I guess today we are going to be covering the yes with a but part. So to talk about if the Queen is the sovereign of Great Britain, we have to uh, step back a little bit and first have to talk about sovereignty. This is because sovereignty has a few different meanings. First, there is national sovereignty. This is the idea that uh, a nation is fully capable of making their own laws and that they are not under the thumb of another nation state. So colonial American uh, America was not sovereign. However, once we claimed our independence, fought a war, and eventually signed the Treaty of Paris in 1783, we became a sovereign nation with the right to govern ourselves. Next is political sovereignty, and because Britain is a constitutional monarchy, sovereignty is inherent in the people in the form of their parliamentary system of government. And then third, there is legal sovereignty, and this is where the authority of a government to exercise its power is vested. This is where one would imagine the power of the monarch to rule as the sovereign power would be vested, and this indeed used to be the case. Though, what has been historically known as the royal prerogative uh, no longer really exists. Or tech, okay, technically, it does still exist, but it is now subordinate to the will of Parliament. Hence, legal sovereignty lies with Parliament. And just as the American system of sovereignty is known as popular sovereignty, the British system is known as parliamentary sovereignty. Now, in parliamentary constitutional monarchies, the legitimacy of the unelected head of state, such as a monarch, typically derives from the tacit approval of the people via their elected representatives. Accordingly, at the time of the Glorious Revolution, the English Parliament acted of its own authority to name a new king and queen. These were the joint monarchs Mary and William. Likewise, uh, in the early 20th century, when Edward VIII wanted to ad abdicate the crown to marry an American divorcee, he first, it first required the approval of each of the six independent realms of which he was monarch. So a head of state in a constitutional monarchy, uh, which the uh, British king or queen is, are really best thought of as the public persona who officially embody a state in its unity and legitimacy, and it depends on the country's form of government and separation of powers, but the head of state may be mostly just a ceremonial figure, and this is largely the case with the British monarchy. Now, in politics, figurehead has a very specific meaning. It is a person who de jure appears to hold an important and often supremely powerful title or office, yet de facto exercises little or no actual power. This means that they are the head of state, but not the head of government. To understand how this works, we are going to turn to William Blackstone's Commentaries on the Common Law of England. Uh, this is a book I reference quite a lot here. Uh, many people will probably be familiar with it, but uh, if you're not, this was a treatise written in 1765, uh, and it, it was at the time and still is really the most authoritative text on the common law of England ever written. 
So Blackstone says, we are next to examine the laws and customs relating to Parliament, thus united together and considered as one aggregate body. The power and jurisdiction of Parliament, says Sir Edward Coke, is so transcendent and absolute that it cannot be confined either for causes or persons within any bounds. It hath sovereign and uncontrollable authority in the making, confirming, enlarging, restraining, abrogating, repealing, reviving, and expounding of laws concerning matters of all possible denominations, ecclesiastical or temporal, civil, military, maritime, or criminal. This being the place where that absolute despotic power, which must in all governments reside, somewhere entrusted by the constitution of these kingdoms. Now, Blackstone goes on to say that sovereignty and legislature are indeed convertible terms. One cannot subsist without the other. Now, this generality would suggest that where all power resides, all others must conform to it and be directed by it. That an act of the legislature may uh, indeed alter the form of the administration by a new edict or rule and put the execution of the laws into whatever hands it pleases, and that all powers of the state must obey the legislative power in the execution of their several functions, or else the Constitution would quite literally be at an end. Now, Great Britain's Constitution is an unwritten Constitution, which means that it is made up of uh, past uh, edicts, charters, and statutes. So, Really, every act of parliament uh, acts like a constitutional amendment does on our written constitution. And this difference has actually played a large role in our revolution. Uh, and we will be returning to how this affected us a little later in this video. Now, originally... Legislative power was exercised by the sovereign acting on the advice of the Curia Regis or King's Royal Council, in which important magnates and clerics participated and which eventually did evolve into Parliament. Now, uh, for example, during Henry VI's reign, it became a regular practice for the two houses to originate legislation in the form of bills, but they would not become laws unless the sovereign's assent was obtained, as the sovereign was, and still technically remains, the enactor of laws. Hence, all acts include a beginning clause that says, quote, be it enacted by the king slash queen, most excellent majesty, by and with the advice and consent of the lords spiritual and temporal, and commons in the present parliament assembled, and by the authority of the same, as follows, da 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 da, da and that's then where they make their proclamation, whatever the law is that they're talking about. And it was during the 17th century in England that this notion developed that Parliament, uh, made up of the House of Lords and the House of Commons, shared sovereignty with the king, based on uh, really an, an entirely erroneous notion of the history of Parliament. And it was not until the changing of the coronation oath in the Coronation Oath Act of 1688 as part of the Glorious Revolution, the Parliament was recognized as part of the constitutional structure with 
laws being considered to emanate from Parliament and not just the King. And in the Bill of Rights of 1689 and the Claim of Right Act of 1689, which were passed the following year, they uh, asserted certain rights of the Parliament of England, uh, which at the time included Wales and Scotland, and it limited the powers of the monarch. Furthermore, in 1698, Parliament created the Civil List, and this was a financial arrangement that essentially left the monarch reliant on Parliament for income. Now, uh, to quote A.V. Dicey about all of this, In the mouth of a lawyer at common law, Parliament means the king, the House of Lords, and the House of Commons, though the word does often have a different sense in conversation. These three bodies acting together may aptly be described as the king in Parliament and constitute Parliament. The principle of parliamentary sovereignty means neither more nor less than this, namely that Parliament, thus defined, has, under the English Constitution, the right to make or unmake any law whatsoever, and further, that no person or body is recognized by the laws of England as having a right to override or set aside the legislation of Parliament. So, the doctrine of parliamentary supremacy can really be summarized in three key points. First, Parliament can make laws concerning anything. Second, no Parliament can bind a future Parliament, that is, it cannot pass a law that cannot be changed or reversed by a further by a future parliament. And third, a valid act of parliament cannot be questioned by the court as parliament is the supreme lawmaker. This means that they have no history of what we would call judicial review. To understand how this all came to be, we have to go way back actually to the very earliest Anglo-Saxon history of England. Uh, and this is an important and really not well-recognized part of the of our history. This isn't just English history. This really is something that carries down uh, through uh, our laws and our customs into our modern system. We incorporated a lot of this even after we split from Britain. So this isn't their history. This is our history. This is, so, yeah, this is British history as much as American history. And this is why uh, many of the more uh, conservative founders of the United States, uh, people like John Jay, always maintained that they joined the rebellion that grew into the revolution purely to preserve their English liberties. So what exactly are these English liberties? Now, one interesting thing about England that... As far back as we can tell, it has always had a very unique ideal of kings who rule by consent. And while Magna Carta in 1215 is the first well-known example of this, it is not the first example ever. Magna Carta is just the most well-known early document whose intention was to limit the monarchy and define the rules and duties of the king and his people. Now, there were several such charters. Going back to Henry I, the founder of the Plantagenet dynasty, and this includes the Charter of Liberties, which was also called the Coronation Charter. 
This was a written proclamation by Henry I of England issued upon his accession to the throne in 1100, and it sought to bind the king to certain laws regarding the treatment of nobles, church officials, and individuals. And this was a landmark document in English legal history and was really the forerunner of Magna Carta. So in 1215, we have Magna Carta. And this is something uh, that is very common in England, what Magna Carta is. And it's, it's that it's not just that their kings always placidly accepted this notion of government by consent and the rule of law. It's more that when the king failed to do this, the English people fought fiercely to maintain that balance and that consent and to keep the rules above the ruler. So following a number of crippling tax hikes that were really not King John's fault and more crippling tax hikes that were King John's fault as he repeatedly failed to win a war with the French that he was fighting as really more of a personal grudge. Essentially, the people got sick of being fleeced and getting killed for John and his brother Richard to go fight and lose wars. And with this, the barons forced John to sign Magna Carta at Runnymede in 1215. Now, Magna Carta is seen as a lot more magnanimous of a document than it actually was. Its 63 clauses were really largely issues of largesse and protectionism for the barons and their feudal system in England. But there are several things in there that we will recognize today as important rights, including the right of habeas corpus, due process, trial by jury, and taxation by consent. These things all uh, are really found at first written into English law in Magna Carta. And, uh, really, they were key aspects that would come to be applied more universally to more and more people every time the document was reissued, which tended to be done every time a king tried to rule beyond that which, was he, which he was sanctioned to do in the, under the common law. And this happened a lot. Now, at this time in 1215, there was no parliament, just a council of barons and clergy. Now, this would change with the issuance of the provisions of Oxford. The modern parliament first came to us as part of these provisions of Oxford in 1258. They asserted the right of the barons to represent in the king's government and, like the earlier Magna Carta, demonstrated the ability of the barons to press their concerns in opposition to the monarchy. This reform initially made England a virtual crown republic. The provision set up a new form of government with a 15-member privy council, nine baronial uh, members to advise the king and oversee the entire administration as a standing body. They also confirmed that there will be three parliaments a year to treat of the common wants of the kingdom and of the king. At these parliaments, the 15 would be checked and monitored by another body of 12 representative barons, and this provisional parliament, for the first time, met to do more than simply consent to the levying of taxes. They were actually invited to weigh in on the laws of the realm. Now, when the man responsible for the provisions of Oxford, a man named Simon de Montfort, the Earl of Leicester, was defeated 
in battle at Ludlow Castle by Henry III's son Edward, the provisions of Oxford were repealed, but they were, however, later confirmed and extended in 1259 under the provisions of Westminster. And these provisions had a significant effect upon the development of the English common law, limiting in part the expansion of royal jurisdiction by way of a number of available writs. But in the main confirming the importance of the common law of the land for all from the king to the commoner. Next, we have the Statute of Marlborough, which was a set of laws passed by Parliament uh, uh, during the reign of Henry III in 1267. These laws comprise 29 chapters, of which four are still in force to this day. And those four chapters constitute the oldest piece of statute law in the United Kingdom still in force in 2021. And this was the final chapter in what was known as the English Baronial Reform Movement, which lasted from 1258 to 1267, and which ended with a permanent parliamentary body of two houses, essentially the form of the modern parliament. But this was a parliament that was still subservient to the royal prerogative. Now, the next reform that continued to give Parliament increasing control over the sovereignty of the nation was the Petition of Right, signed in 1628 by King Charles I. Now, it's worth mentioning that these Stuart kings were all tyrants. This document meant very little to them. And, surprisingly, even after the Interregnum, which was the 11-year reign of Oliver Cromwell as Lord Protector of the Realm ended and the monarchy was restored uh, to Charles Charles II in his ascension to the throne. While Charles did confirm his commitment to the petition of right before his coronation, and while he never outright abused or ignored it quite the same way his father did, he tried to flout it in many ways when possible. A good example of this are the English game laws, which were passed, in theory, to protect the rights of the king to his traditional hunting grounds. However, when you actually read the English game law, it is obviously a law meant to give the crown the power to disarm any citizen for any reason, thus flouting the right protected by the petition of right for all Englishmen to have arms for their defense. Now, the really major shift was the Glorious Revolution. This was when uh, Parliament essentially told King James II to go fuck off so his daughter Mary and her husband, William of Orange, could be crowned as the joint monarchs of the realm. And it was this that led to the Bill of Rights of 1689. And this was really a landmark act in the constitutional law of England, and it was of central importance to the Glorious Revolution. Now, parliamentary supremacy, parliamentary sovereignty, and thus, uh, every issue is really important to this video that we are talking about here that set out the basic civil rights and clarify who would be next to inherit the crown uh, were in this document, the Bill of Rights of 1689. Now, it received the royal assent on the 16th of December, 1689, and 
it is essentially a restatement of a statutory form of the Declaration of Rights that was presented by the Convention Parliament to William and Mary in February, inviting them to become joint sovereigns of England on the condition they first agreed to govern according to these provisions of the English Bill of Rights. So, they, of course, consented, um, and what they were consenting to was a Bill of Rights that essentially laid down limits on the power of the monarch and set out the rights of Parliament, which is the very first time parliamentary supremacy and sovereignty are plainly stated. And this includes a requirement for regular parliaments, free elections, and freedom of speech in Parliament. It sets out certain rights of individuals, including the prohibition of cruel and unusual punishment, and confirmed that Protestants may have arms for their defense suitable to condition as allowed by law. It also includes no right of taxation without Parliament's consent. And furthermore, the Bill of Rights described uh, and essentially condemned many of the misdeeds of James II of England. Now, these ideas reflected those of the political philosopher John Locke, who, if you're a regular viewer, will know is not only my favorite philosopher, but also my namesake. So, uh, yeah, this, this is why, part of why I'm so interested in this period of history is I think John Locke is fascinating, but that's neither here nor there. Anyways, um, that is to say that these ideas quickly became very popular in England. And it also set out... Uh, or, really in the view of its drafters, restates, more properly said, certain constitutional requirements of the Crown to seek the consent of the people as represented in Parliament. So, in the United Kingdom, it was, uh, the Bill of Rights was further accompanied by Magna Carta, the Petition of Right, uh, another act that we didn't talk about known as the Habeas Corpus Act of 1679, and two other acts we didn't talk about, the Parliament Acts of 1911 and 1949, whose specifics really aren't uh, very important to this particular video. Be these are the basic documents to make up the uncodified British Constitution. And this was the culmination of parliamentary supremacy, but not the culmination of modern Parliament, uh, where the monarch is more of a mere figurehead. Following the Glorious Revolution, the monarch still had some real executive power, and this didn't change for a couple of generations. It was really only with the arrival of the Hanoverian dynasty in the early 1700s that they slipped from having a supreme parliament with a king holding real executive power to a king as mere figurehead, ruling with a de jure and not de facto executive power. Where, however, the, leg the legacy of 1688 seemed most emphatic was in its repudiation of the pretensions of the Stuart absolutism and their supporting doctrines of uh, non-resistant and divine right of kingship. Now, William Blackstone explained the principal duty of the king is to govern his people according to the law, meaning the law of parliament. Accordingly, the revolution, the revolutionary Parliament had moved to regulate and restrain by statute uh, just those practices of royal prerogative, uh, such as suspending and dispensing powers of the law, uh, through which uh, James II 
and all of these Stuart monarchs really, violated the laws and liberties of the kingdom and threatened the Protestant religion and undermined the constitutional order by governing without consent of Parliament. Now, where had James II had sworn a coronation oath to keep the ancient customs of the realm, William and Mary swore more precisely to govern, quote, according to the statutes in Parliament agreed on, and and the laws and customs of the same. And the continual struggle of the first four Stuart reigns uh, between the crown and the people, uh, and between privilege and prerogative, David Hume explained in the final chapter of his History of England, had been settled in favor of liberty. The powers of the royal prerogative were more narrowly circumscribed and more exactly defined, and the great precedent of deposing one king and establishing a new family put the nature of the English constitution beyond all controversy. So finally, uh, I want to address the one point that was not asked of me for this topic, but which I want to talk about, uh, and that is, what did parliamentary sovereignty have to do with the colonial rebellion that turned into a revolution and eventual separation from Britain? And uh, why did we turn away from those English liberties that the founders so revered? Uh, after all, it was just a tax dispute and not an argument over the form of government that caused us to declare independence, right? Well, not really. Now, the Patriot position was that the British Constitution admits of no subject to be taxed without representation, that when the Parliament determined otherwise, it caused a civil strife that culminated in the admission on this axiom, and that this is evident through the great charters such as Magna Carta, the Petition of Right, and the English Bill of Rights. On the other hand, the British position was that the Glorious Revolution of 1688 had settled all questions regarding whether Parliament is supreme in the British Empire. And when Parliament invited William and Mary of Orange to take the throne from James, conditioned on their acceptance of a document that came to be known as the English Bill of Rights, in which, among other things, clearly stated this concept of parliamentary supremacy as an aspect of the government fully accepted by the new monarchs, uh, this is evident in the fact that the new monarchs agreed that Parliament indeed had the right to boot out their last shitty king and replace him with a new king whenever they felt like it. And this is an intrinsic uh, recognition that they did not rule by divine, light, divine right or absolute tyrants like the stewards did, but that the king and queen owe their position to Parliament. And one aspect of this doctrine, at least according to the British position on the matter, was that the British Parliament had the right to legislate for the entire British Empire, and that they were superior in this to the colonial legislators.
Now, this misunderstanding goes back a little further than most people really recognize. Most people usually start with the Stamp Acts and the Writs of Assistance as the genesis of the quarrel, but it actually goes back about another decade uh, to 1755 in the earliest days of the French and Indian War. The British government was expecting the colonies to supply troops and money to support the war effort, and the Parliament-appointed colonial governors were acting as though it was their right to take whatever they pleased as far as men, money, and materiel. Now, if you remember, I said a little earlier that more changes came to the government during the Hanoverian dynasty. The change I am talking about was the position of the prime minister, which was not actually a created position. It had evolved slowly and organically, really over several, uh, about 300 years, due to numerous acts of parliaments, political developments, and really a few accidents of history. Uh, but the origin of the position are found in the constitutional changes that occurred during the Revolutionary Settlement Period from 1688 to 1720, and the resulting shift of political power from the Sovereign to Parliament. Now, although the Sovereign was not stripped of the ancient prerogative powers and legally remained the head of government politically, it gradually became necessary for him or her to govern through a Prime Minister who would command a majority in Parliament. And by the 1830s, the Westminster system of government, or cabinet government, had emerged. With this, the prime minister had become uh, the primus inter pares, or the first among equals in the cabinet at the head of the government of the United Kingdom. And one of the earliest duties of the prime minister, going back to the first days of the man considered the de facto first prime minister, Robert Walpole, was governing the empire beyond the board beyond the borders of the United Kingdom itself. So during the French and Indian War, the position of uh, Prime Minister shifted from Robert Walpole's to their second Prime Minister, William Pitt. Now, Pitt understood that the colonists wanted to be seen as equal partners in the empire, at least in matters that were of concern to them. And that meant uh, giving consent to taxation and other duties like providing colonial militia and so forth. So, William Pitt first recalled the largely despised British colonial governor, the Earl of Loudoun, and sent letters to the colonial legislatures asking them to assist with money and troops as equals, and by giving these legislators most of what they wanted, uh, they he was able essentially to get everything that he wanted from them. However, what happened was, uh, right around uh, the time that the Seven Year War, excuse me, that the French and Indian War was ending, was around the time that William Pitt was also unseated. However, even though the French and Indian War was over, it was part of a larger war known as the Seven Years' War between Britain and France that continued uh, for a number of, for a couple of years at least, and uh, the next Prime Minister made the mistake of once again demanding tax money from the colonists to, to continue fighting a war 
which we no longer had anything to do with. Now, the colonists had always resisted demands for taxation, but what really pushed them too far about the Stamp Act was that after finally feeling like they had been recognized as loyal British subjects whom could only be taxed with their consent, uh, as William Pitt treated them, they felt betrayed by the government. And it was this betrayal that made the attempt to collect these taxes different from past attempts. So, for example, during the French and Indian War, uh, Washington was quoted as saying, For my part, I shall not undertake to say where the line between Great Britain and the colony should be drawn, but I am clearly of an opinion that one ought to be drawn, and our rights ought to be clearly ascertained. I could wish I owned that this dispute could be left to posterity to determine, but the crisis is upon us, and our rights must be asserted. And for Washington and a great number of founders, this was a family argument, not a revolution. However, this feeling of betrayal is what led to the more incendiary founders and gave uh, much harsher refutations of these new taxes. Uh, a few examples are uh, the Virginian Richard Bland, who wrote that the North American colonies were not parts of England and were established by independent efforts, that the colonial charters of the colonists supersede parliamentary supremacy and policy, that the colonists had all the same rights as freeborn Englishmen, and that the English constitutional system was paramount above parliamentary policy. Now, James Iredell refuted the British interpretation of parliamentary sovereignty thusly. The British Empire was comprised of several states. All states had their own legislative assembly. The king serves as the executive of legislatures. Each legislature has a responsibility to uphold the happiness of its people and aggregate the good of all people affected by British Parliament need to be considered before taxes are levied. And this is done through the very representatives that the colonies lacked. And in James Iredell's letters to the inhabitants of Great Britain, he stated, When an empire is divided into several different and distinct states, the aggregated good for all of those ought to be consulted. For where would be the justice to regard only one of two of these worthy of the care and tender provision of the laws and expose the rest to chance or the very uncertain whimsical caprice or mean rapacity of the other? Now, James Otis refuted the British position as well when he declared parliamentary sovereignty was fundamentally incompatible for the American patriots as early as 1761. And in James Otis's amazing work in denouncing the writs of assistance, he noted, A supreme legislative and supreme executive power must be placed somewhere in every commonwealth where there is no positive provision or compact to the contract those powers remain in the whole body of the people. So what Otis is saying there is, you can't hold us to a document changing the fundamental underpinnings of the common law that we never consented to. Now, finally, I want to try to touch on part of Jay's question that he had asked about Canada. 
Now, I'm going to admit, just right off the top, I do not know nearly as much about Canada as I do about Britain and America. So really, if there's any Canadians or anyone familiar with the Canadian government system that could help fill me in uh, on the details, uh, maybe you could mention them down in a comment below. Uh, I would like to know more about this. I just don't have a great deal of time to devote to Canada, uh, since honestly, their laws and government, unlike that of Great Britain, have no real effect or connection to us. So, with Canada, I know that they are still a constitutional monarchy as well, uh, and I know that the Canadian government's relationship with Britain is an incredibly complicated issue. So, for the purposes of this video, I will only speak to what I know to be true, which is really only a part of it, uh, and uh, it's at least a start, I guess. So anyways, what I do know for sure is that the Queen is indeed the Queen of Canada. It is considered a Commonwealth realm, which, unlike Britain, means that there are several powers, which are the sovereigns alone, being the Queen in this case. In the case, uh, the sovereign is the Queen, and those powers are managed by her appointment of a governor-general who fills the role of head of state. However, in each province, the monarchy is represented by a lieutenant governor. Now, Elizabeth II, as Queen of Canada, is the sovereign and head of state of Canada and gives repository of executive power, judicial, and legislative power, as expressed in the Constitution. The executive government and authority over Canada is hereby declared to continue and be vested in the Queen. However, sovereignty in Canada has never rested solely with the monarch due to the English Bill of Rights of 1689, later inherited by Canada, which first established the principle of parliamentary sovereignty in the United Kingdom. Nonetheless, the monarch is still the sovereign of Canada. However, the patriation of the Canadian Constitution was achieved in 1982 when the British Parliament, with the request and assent of the Canadian Parliament, passed the Canada Act of 1982, which included its schedule, in its schedules the Constitution Act of 1982. The United Kingdom thus renounced any remaining responsibility for, or jurisdiction over Canada, in a formal ceremony on Parliament Hill in Ottawa, where Queen Elizabeth II proclaimed the Constitution Act into law on the 17th of April 1982. Well, that is pretty much the extent of what I know about that. So I hopefully this video as a whole was an adequate answer to Jay's question. I hope everyone watching found it useful. Uh, let me know your thoughts about this topic down below in the comment section. Uh, and you can, if you would like me to speak to uh, anything I talked about here a little more uh, as a as a topic of another video. You can always just leave me a request right down in the comments. Or again, you can go over and become a patron on my Patreon page for as little as two bucks a month. And one of the cool perks that you get there uh, is the uh, in its ability to connect with me more directly, I guess, is that you get a guaranteed video request, which means any topic you want, I will cover whether or not it's one I would necessarily otherwise make a video about. Um, so yeah, that's just... Uh, Anyway, that's all I really got for you guys today. So uh, I want to thank you all so much for joining me here on Categorical Imperatives. I have been Locking Liberal. 
talking about English sovereignty. And of course, as always, de lenda est Carthago.